Hello, my dear friends. Thank you for tuning into this latest episode of Love Service Wisdom with myself, Marissa Rada Wepner. I am delighted to share with you this week my guest, David Nickturn, who was one of the original Western students of the renowned Tibetan Buddhist meditation master, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, when he came to the U.S. in the 1970s. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche is also the founder of the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. And David Nickturn has been, um, he is a senior Tibetan Buddhist teacher here in the United States. He's also an Emmy winner. He's a renowned musician. He is part of Krishna Das's house band, but he's also played with the greats like Stevie Wonder and Paul Simon and Jerry Garcia. He is an author. He wrote the definitive um, book on a classic Buddhist teaching called Awakening from the Daydream, Reimagining the Buddha's Wheel of Life. And he just released uh, last year, Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Book. That's all about how to be spiritual and be an entrepreneur and be creative at the same time. And also has a really cool cameo in The Midnight Gospel out there on Netflix, Duncan Trussell's show, The Midnight Gospel. David plays himself, David. He's like one of the few characters in that show that looks like himself, which is pretty cool. And uh, I got the honor of first meeting David over a year ago when Krishna and I went to our first Ramdas retreat in Maui in the spring in May of 2000. 19, he was there and I just knew him as Krishna Das's guitar player because he was playing guitar on stage for um, all the kirtans. And that was as far as I knew, that was all that I knew about David at that time. And then I went to the second Ram Das retreat, my second Ram Das retreat, and the last one with dear Ram Das in December of 2019. And one of the first nights that we were there, we all have dinner together. Remember those days when we used to eat together so casually with friends? And we were sitting with Duncan Trussell and his wife, Erin, and their baby, who I was holding, and a few other friends. And David was at the table, and Krishna was there, of course. And we're all just chatting and talking and telling stories. And I got, oh, man, I had this like baby moment with sweet little baby, baby Trussell, where, um, yeah, I just got to hold him for a long time and he was super calm and happy and wonderful. And there was this moment David looked across the table at me and he said something like, he looked deeply into me and was like, you have really nice mother energy. And I thought, that is just the sweetest thing anybody said to me in the longest time. Because I do, I love babies so much. And I, yeah, I just love, love babies. And then when I would see David around after that, we would chat, you know, walking to the pavilion and whatnot. And he was talking about his book, Creativity, Spirituality, Making a Buck, which had um, come out uh, that October. So just before the retreat. So I saw him around and he was a very kind, super grounded, lovely, clear man, soul, spirit. And I thought, that's great. This guy's awesome. I'll check out his book. And then, you know, got back and life got happening. And then um, 
we all know the COVID happened and the quarantine happened. And I started to listen to a lot more podcasts. And so did my daughter, Maya, who's 16. And I kind of introduced her to Duncan Trussell's world through the Midnight Gospel. Because when that came out, I said, oh, girl, you got to watch this. You're going to love it. And she absolutely did. It was super sweet. When I told her, when I when the show finally started, I'm like, how's it going? Are you enjoying the Midnight Gospel? She's like, oh, mom, I'm savoring it. I'm just letting, I'm not binging. I'm, I'm letting myself watch one show a day. I'm like, okay, good. That's great. And then she said, there's this character, David, that I love in the show. I'm like, okay, cool. I hadn't watched it at that point. And then like a week goes by and we're, like I said, listening to more podcasts and she sends me a podcast. She's like, there's this guy, David, that Duncan's trust, Duncan is talking to that I just love. That's Duncan Trussell's family hour. I'm like, cool, I'll check it out. I, I'm so enjoying that my daughter's gotten to this age, being a teenager who's quite open-minded too, that we can kind of share philosophy, psychology, worldview, entertainment back and forth. So this was part of that. And then when I finally listened to the podcast, I realized that David she had been talking about was David Nickturn, who I had met at the retreats. And I was like, oh, I'm putting all the pieces together now. I'm caught up. I'm on the same page. And she's just so blown away by his book, Awakening from the Daydream, that Duncan and him were talking about in that one particular podcast. So I bought her the book on Amazon so she could read it. And then I said, you know, I could reach out to David and see if you wanted to talk and have him on podcast. And she's all starry eyed and thinks that's the coolest thing and is excited about it. And I'm, she's like, yes, definitely. See, see if you, see if he'll talk to you, mom. And so I reached out cold call and David was very kind and very sweet. And we scheduled our conversation. So this is back from May 26th. So a month two months, two months prior to me recording this intro right now, David and I had this conversation. He was out on the East Coast and I was here in Idaho. And it's a wonderful conversation where we talk about how to create a livelihood while being spiritual and creative and like the necessity of proper training on the spiritual path, but also the merging of Buddhism and shamanism and synchronicity and projecting into the future what our culture might look like in a hundred years and all kinds of other wonderful things. And since then, my daughter, she's finished her book and she's taken a course, her first course on Buddhism. And her and David, I think we'll have a, a one-on-one talk too, because he kindly, as you'll hear at the end of the podcast, offered that to her. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation that I have with David. And again, keep in mind, it was recorded back at the end of May. So a little while back, we're not super current in our conversation because we're just casually in COVID. Before I give it to you, though, I want to thank my Patreon supporters, Mary and Zarin and Megan and Krishna and Michelle. They support this podcast by giving monthly through Patreon. And if you would like to do that, too, at any amount, a few bucks, a few bucks adds up. Trust me. It's um, easy to do if you go to Patreon and you search for Love Service Wisdom or Marissa Rada Wepner. You can also support this podcast if you like it by giving it a five-star review. You can do that right now while we're talking. That's on Apple anyways. You scroll down to the bottom of my Apple feed there and you can just hit 
five stars, super simple, and leave a review if you want to. And it's helpful in the way that, you know, we're living in this rated, quantified world where people see that other people like it and they think, well, I might like it too. So it reaches listenership the more stars that we have. So I appreciate you doing that so, 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 so much. And um, coming up for me, I think I've told you guys that we've canceled our Boulder retreats, our Spirit Dive, the fourth annual Spirit Dive in October. That's postponed until January 2021. We're also postponing Tree Fort and Yoga Fort, or not January, sorry, September 2021. And then Tree Fort and Yoga Fort are also being postponed to September 2021. Tomorrow, I'm going to teach my very last class at my decade-long yoga studio, Sage Yoga and Wellness. Sage Yoga and Wellness. So wish me luck for that. And I'm moving on into uncharted waters. <laughs> and it feels... Uh, the one, I described it today when I saw friends that it feels like a divorce where you feel so much grief on one hand and um, yeah, just longing for what was and all those amazing memories and then also lighter at the same time and hopeful and you know that things are in alignment and they will work out just the way that they're supposed to. So I'm carrying that energy with me. I am starting to do group ketamine assisted therapy through the Boise Ketamine Clinic and I'll be starting two new groups around mid-August. One will be group ketamine-assisted therapy for psycho-spiritual growth, and one will be group ketamine-assisted therapy for meditators. And I'm really excited about the opportunity to um, go into and hold space for those non-ordinary states of consciousness for the meditator yogi groups. So folks, individuals, if you're interested in that, it's a really small group setting you can send me a message at uh, marissawepner at gmail.com or hit me up on my website, marissaradawepner.com, and I'll give you more details about what that experience might look like and how you could join it if you're interested. So website's a great way to find all kinds of info, Marissa Wepner, Marissa Rada Wepner, Marissa Rada. I own all those domains.com. You can go all to all of those and it's got all kinds of things on it. But enough about that. I want to say I just love all of you so much. So grateful for your support, even in just listening. And here is David Nickturn. Ah, strange as I ended up at the end of my life as a cartoon. It's Totally appropriate. Well, I have my own name, too. Yeah. I got away with nothing. I, I simply uh, did whatever Duncan asked me to do and told me to do. So it was his construction. And then he said, could you come down and read your part? And uh, so I went to the studio and I read the script that, uh, that he had constructed, obviously from dialogues we've had over, over the last couple of years. Uh, and then we improv a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they just cut it, they cut it in. I had no idea what they were going to do with it. And, you uh, didn't know if you would turn into like a space alien or whatever. Yeah, I think um, 
it was, uh, you know, him and Pendleton's Ward's creative juice all the way. And he's just drawing in, you know, from the things, people he's been talking to over the years and filtering it through his own unique lens. Uh, and then it comes out as this, you know, uh, mind journey, mm-hmm. visual, audio. I think one of the things Duncan really did great was the music, actually. Oh, yeah. Did he make all of that? He created a lot of that music. I, I've really kind of um, you know, encouraged that because he's, he's really got some kind of a specific sound in mind. And then he, um, I put him in touch with Peter Rowan, who did the opening song mm-hmm. uh, for the thing. And, and um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of connections there. But mainly Duncan and I just, you know, over the years have had conversations in which we just, it's sort of like you just uh, turn the amp up to 11 and you go. That's how, that's how it works, you know. <laughs> so when you were filming the show, I know it was snippets of podcasts. Did you re-speak it or was that the original co- recording from the podcast? No, no, we didn't. None of that was from a podcast that I'm aware of. We, we read oh, that in the studio okay. to a script and then we improv some stuff. Actually, okay. a fair amount of it was improv, just uh, me talking to And then there's this one moment where we, uh, we, they flash for a second. I uh, saw that. Our, yeah, our actual people, you know, our, our actual non, non-cartoon characters. Yeah, you're kind of laughing in the studio and you yeah. can see you for a second. And it seems, I only watched the show once. That was the only time that they, I caught that they did that. Yeah, me too. I didn't see any other it- iterance of that. So I think we broke the fourth wall a little bit. You know what that means in theater talk? <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 So, um, but you know, I mean, I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm a kind of hybrid of, uh, the, the, um, the, it's very well expressed in my recent book, creativity, spirituality, and making a buck, which is really my platform right now is, um, very interested in the creative expression. I'm very interested in the livelihood issues. And then, you know, having some kind of holistic integration of all that into, into what we think of as our kind of spiritual or, psychological emotional well-being and um so I, I like working with people i work with a lot of musicians i like with work with a lot of creative people entrepreneurs uh, that energy appeals to me more than the kind of uh, um, renunciate recalcitrant you know uh pull away from the world kind of yeah you've been a householder and in- uh, that's exactly well said Householder yeah, yogi yeah yeah householder yogi buddhist entrepreneur, musician, creative, author, so many hats. Hybrid is a great way to put it. And I love the energy of us hybrid humans that have our fingers in lots of different pots and seem to make it work. And it's encouraging, inspiring that you, it seems like your new book breaks down the process of how to make that work. Well, and, you know, in all fairness, it's somewhat autobiographical in the sense it's, it was my equation, but I also felt that it was worth sharing because I see so many people who are trying to sort through that uh, paradigm. How can, how can I, you know, people who maybe are doing practice and yet they can't figure out their livelihood equation. You know, there's people who are very deep into their career, but they can't figure out how to get some kind of core practice going on in their life. And um, uh, then just the, f- the creative uh, process to me is the ground of the whole thing. We, we live in creation. Mm-hmm. This is, I, I'm from a school, I'm a Buddhist, so I don't believe anybody outside of it created it. As, as Dalai Lama said, you know, we don't, 
positive belief in a creator deity that maintains a separate identity somehow from the creation itself. So we, we Buddhists, we would talk about, you know, self-creation. You know, it's just, um, it's a self-existing um, phenomenon. So, <clears throat> you know, within that, the fundamental essence of it is creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, things like you, you and I having this conversation, where is this coming from? Nowhere, right? Just ground zero. And we just go like, okay, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And then, you know, then we play, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Toltecs, a lineage that I work with a lot, calls this expression that life is, you're the artist. You're the mm-hmm. artist of your life. Yeah, you're, dream, you're dreaming. You're dreaming this world, right? Yeah, for the Toltecs, this is the dream. And what are you going to dream? And how will you create it? Who did you study with? A Toltec shaman? Um, it's in the it's in the lineage of Don Miguel Ruiz. So I did a lot uh-huh. of work and do a lot of work in Teotihuacan. My teacher is uh-huh. Lee McCormick. Oh, I like that. I like that teacher. Yeah, a friend of mine, Michael Mazel, has met and studied with him, worked mm-hmm. with him, and then I met one of his. There was a woman who was one of his shaman, and they had good energy. They had really, really. Um, I I also I do some projects sometimes with Alberto Violdo and Marcelo Lobos, his wife. Four winds, and and they're they're uh, really uh, highly trained uh, shaman in, in the Cairo um, tradition, and and um, in Peru, I've, yeah. And I met the shaman. Some of the, they they sometimes bring around four or five of the shaman, and I I I love those guys. Yeah. There's something and it, the, <laughs> some funny stories actually. They um, we uh, my my. Um, a partner uh, Monica and I went to. I, I asked her, "Well, gee, what would you like to do for your birthday that's coming up?" And said, "Anything. Don't even think about it." She goes, um, "Well, I've never been to Machu Picchu." And I said, "I, I you know, I meant like a restaurant or something like that. <laughs> like we go down to the East Village or someplace, you know." <laughs> so uh, we did it. We went to Machu Picchu and we hooked up with uh, Alberto and um, Marcella and their tribe. In um, in the valley there, and hung out with them for a couple of days. And the shaman, it was it was uh, it was Monica's birthday, so we had this cake made in the form of Machu Picchu. It was a green cake, and it had the whole landscape of Machu Picchu on the cake. And then we couldn't, of course, we didn't finish it, and we gave it to the shaman, and they scarfed it. They ate it so fast and so much of it. And Alberto got mad at me. He said, "Look, they're going to be high on sugar all day now. <laughs> they love cake." <laughs> So, you know, this is another, um, I, I have a, an affinity for these people and I've taught with uh, Alberto and Marcella. Uh, so this is something I think is um, very interesting to me that you're in, involved with that. Yeah, I love um, the shamanic traditions. Tomorrow I have a podcast with a teacher, Jorge Luis Delgado. He's a Quechua Peruvian shaman. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, kind of integrated in a way these perspectives yeah. and the access well, that we have. And these days, like Alberto and Marcelli study Buddhism too. You know, they have, um, um, they have a little uh, small Buddhist um, center attached to their center in Chile. And they've been um, studying because, you know, they, I, I'm sure you know this, but they, they, they see the um, Andes and the Himalayas as reflections of each other. Have you heard this? I haven't. No, but I can uh, and, imagine and that's, uh, that's true. The Himalayas are the masculine energy and the Andes is the feminine energy. 
and they're like opposite poles of the earth. And you look at the people, and you, I mean, Alberto once drew me this whole graph of the earth before the continents split off, and like people could have just walked across the, the, uh, uh, the these people seem to be uh, eth- ethnically connected in some way. You know, like he showed me pictures of his, the, the older shamans. I said, they look like Tibetans, you know. So there's some kind of hookup going on there. And and there is a kind of, yeah, the Tibetan Buddhist thing is sort of like, in a way, it's very masculine. It's um, very intellectual and very dense and deep and psychological. And, you know, the, the uh, shamanic thing is a little earthier. Very and, feminine, uh, very yeah, earth-based. Very, mm-hmm. yeah. very, very true. Yeah. yeah and then for them the the adding the buddhist perspective for me buddhism is so much like psychology it's the mind understanding yeah. the mind i mean nobody's yes, really understood the mind more than the buddhists have except for sigmund freud maybe <laughs> well he had a he had a twist on it yeah <laughs> no it's deep you know i i think you know we westerners who throw out our own traditional traditions in exploring these other ones are are in peril of missing something, uh, you know, because there's something in the kind of um, uh, depth of the Western psychology um, that, and it was so beautifully phrased in the term spiritual bypassing that you could, have you heard that phrase ever? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that you could go around, you get deep into these arcane studies and you go around some very obvious psychological, historical, uh, you know, um, I mean, of course, there's ways of talking about it in, in, in Buddhism, you know, habitual patterns and glaciers and, th- and you know. Um, but, you know, you could miss something really obvious. If even 50 years in of becoming a serious Buddhist student, you could, you could miss something really right in front of your face. Of course, a good teacher wouldn't let you get away with it, but you could. Yeah, the integration with, with uh, Western psychology, with Buddhism, with shamanism creates a very powerful path. My own studies, I have a master's in transpersonal psychology and the integration mm. of all these is... So I'm preaching to the choir here. Right? You are. You're, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. And your teacher, he's the founder of Naropa, right? Yes. Trungpa Rinpoche, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche was my teacher. And he came to America in 1970. Um, and he had been in England for a period of time before that, then India, and before that, obviously, was trained in Tibet. He was the head of one of the Sermon group of monasteries there. And he was, um, so he was really one of the first Tibetans to come to the West. A couple others, but not many at that time, really. And he also had a kind of lightning mind, I think, fast, you know, on the draw. And so he, he, I, I think he took one look and said, "We're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy." <laughs> he wasn't trying to reproduce uh, the Tibetan cultural envelope here, um, although the authenticity of it, the depth of it, definitely training all that. So he was an innovator, and I met him immediately as he got off the boat, quote unquote, literally. Um, and um, 1970, the fall of 1970, he came mm-hmm. to he came to a yoga studio that I was going to in Boston at the time when I was going to the Berkeley College of Music, and he came as a guest speaker. And the first seminar he gave was called "Work, Sex, and Money," 
That was the title of it. And he came in in a business suit. I just, I was, I was more tripped out than he was. In the in his talk, work, sex, and money. How did he relate that? Do you recall to the Buddhist principles or path? Oh, totally. And, well, first of all, it's it's now a book that, uh, that those a couple of those lectures were made into a book that's called Work, Sex, and Money uh-huh. by him. So you can you can read the the uh, condensation of those classes. Uh, the principle was, unfortunately, you know, you hear that and you go, "Oh, this is going to be exciting," and you know, uh, it was it was one of my first impressions of of a uh, Rinpoche was a kind of flatness or expanse, which most people would call boring, spacious. We we learned to recognize it as spacious, <laughs> but it took a while. At first, it's go, where's the juice? Where's the jazz? Where's, where's the, the sex? You know, yeah, yeah, and it was all just basically the principles are the same that you are working with the energy of life. There is you can you can address it mindfully and uh, with some you know proper understanding of the you know how to connect to those energies, how to connect to work, money, things like that, uh, with some kind of integrity, uh, or you just go on a, a ride, and so it's always a flattening. I would say his main role was to flatten us out, basically, and and ground us. And from there, um, you know, the situation evolves, let's just say. Yeah, from the grounding and the flattening. Yeah, slowing down. Yeah, then the world starts to appear in certain kind of vivid colors. And that's that's Buddhist tantras, you know, is that the the world of... um, you know, apparent reality arises from emptiness. So, therefore, it has a, an apparitional or illusional quality to it, but it's extremely vivid and it's mm-hmm. extremely um, um, wisdom-based. Mm-hmm. So, but before you flatten it, you're just in the ordinary you know, samsaric, you know, in the six realms, you know. Yeah, you're reminding me, I teach um, courses on like intro to Tantra through the yogic point of view. When I'm describing Tantra, I go back to Tibetan Buddhism and and share with them that Tibetan Buddhism is actually a, a very Tantric practice. But before that, it was shamanic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to just loop back around to like the teachers that we were speaking of in Peru who still have that, they call themselves shamans. In my understanding... Pre-Buddhism was also a shamanic experience. In Tibet, that's true. Yeah. And that was the Bunpo. Ubuntu. Bunpo. Bunpo. Uh, B-O-N with the umlaut. Okay. But that was the native shamanic tradition of Tibet before. before you see, um, the, the Buddhism flourished in India for, for you know, 1,200 years before any of it went to Tibet. And there were two teachers, there was Padmasambhava and Atisha, who are Indian masters, who went to Tibet on the invitation to come up there. Uh, and then that was the early translation. And then about a couple hundred years, so that's about 800 AD, and then about 1,000 AD, um, uh, a teacher named Marpa came to India to study, um, and he started went to back to Tibet and started a whole lineage there. So that's the Kagyu and Nyingma lineages of Tibet. They really derive from Indian t- Tantric Buddhism, and the one thing to note there is that, um, and this is a great thing that Rinpoche said about Hinduism. He said Hinduism has is all tantric. They don't have Hinayana and Mahayana. 
right. particularly. That kind of train, that raw, rough training, and then the compassion training. Uh, of course, it's all embedded in it. But Buddhism is, you know, stepwise into, into that view. So um, it's very complete in a way. Uh, but in, in Tibet, you know, the, the, they really were transplanted, um, you know, so that that's about 1,200 years ago. And, and then it took root, you know. It's just like when we go to Maui, there's trees on Maui that are not from Maui. Did you know that? No, but I can imagine. None of it's from Maui. Yeah, the invasive species of what was brought over. It was all brought over. It would be it would be more like a, a, you know a much more spacious uh, climate, and so things sometimes get transplanted and grow. We have to see what grows in the West with all this stuff because I mean, this is one of my favorite topics too. Is like what is how is this going to look in a hundred years in the West? All these traditions coming over. What are they going to look like? What are we going to look like? What are we going to be wearing? Uh, what teachings are we going to be working with? What do you see? What comes to you in that question? Well, I can I can right away see this. Like like somebody like you, you're exposed to Western psychology. You have a degree in psychology. Then you're also um, studying shamanism, authentic lineage of shamanism. You have access to all the Buddhist teachings. That was never the case before. You can't you can't. The Toltecs didn't know about the Buddhist teachings. And vice versa. So I think there's going to be some kind of um, hybrid. Uh, and I think also the style of culture in the West is much more individual based. Mm-hmm. You know, people, people give a lot. You can't just flatten out the individuality of people and say it's all one in the West. Each person wants to express themselves. They've been trained since ch- childbirth that their individual expression is important. Uh, it's different in Asia. You sub- Sometimes you, the culture submerges that. Um, so I, I don't know exactly what. And also then we have a m- very contemporary theistic tradition. We have the Christian tradition, mm-hmm. Islam, Jewish. It, it'll be some kind of um, hybrid. And um, the challenge for people like you and me and our, our gang, so to speak, is to import properly and fully the authentic tradition before we start to play with it. Which is you could, tricky. Very tricky. And I see it a lot with my younger students. Like they, go, they just want to grab and go. Yeah. They want they, to take out. Yes. You know? Yes. And when you're younger, you think you know a lot more than you do. And you think you understand a lot more than you do. You have a level of understanding, but this is from my own experience. Uh-huh. The, the depth at which you think you understand it is a little skewed. But boy, do you really feel like you get it. But you get it to the degree that you do, and it is deep. But I've just noticed as I've aged and matured, it, it keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, what is that they say? You know, my parents uh, got so much smarter as I got older. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. But, um, you know, the question of depth and expanse, that's a really interesting xy axis is like you want things to be accessible as they become more accessible they become diluted necessarily as they go deeper they become more inaccessible in a way so the question is can some can some form develop that has depth and expanse um and i would say that equals culture when you have depth and expanse Mm -hmm. you have the possibility of really having a culture we don't have as far as i'm concerned in america right now we don't really have a culture it's really a missing element 
Uh, it's very immature, our culture. Yeah, the culture is movies and pop music. It feels like that's what tries to masquerade as it. But I would, again, say personally, the lack of a connection to a culture is what you know, creates the curiosity where I'm looking into Buddhism or shamanism or something that's giving me a sense of meaning and of place that I'm borrowing and experimenting Well, you know, with. people do have their own Christian traditions and their um, Jewish traditions. And for some people, they can go quite deeply into those. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I like to take... Um, there's this thing on Star Trek called the Universal Translator. Have you ever seen that? Mm-hmm. I always wondered, how come everybody speaks English in outer space, you know? <laughs> With people, these funny heads and stuff. But they apparently have a translator, and we're on the verge of having it, by the way, in terms of AI, where you could speak and it would come out Japanese, you know? And that's not going to be that far away. But do when you're speaking to somebody, you have to make extra effort to understand how they use words and how, they, how, they, how they're how their disk is formatted, you know? And they say Buddha could speak every language. That's something I've heard. Have you ever heard that? No, I haven't. There's certain qualities that. of Buddha, you know, earlobes and the crown and the head and webbed feet, and it's all kinds of things. But one, one thing is Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha was supposed to speak every language, but I take it more like he really could tune in to yeah. how people are communicating, body language included, and also mind included, mm-hmm. direct mind communication. So, um, so I don't know what it's going to look like in a hundred years. I hope we're, I hope I hope um, our great grandkids are here to see it. And of course, we have some deep um, concerns these days. You know. Yeah, that is the hope for sure. Well, I, I don't know. Many of us, no, nobody knows. I feel like I'm in the great age in this moment through the quarantine and the lockdown and the COVID and the transition of the great unknowing. I don't know what we yeah. thought we knew and what we could plan for and prepare for and what was coming. That's not true anymore. Yeah. Well, it never was true. And right. then it seemed true, but it seems less true now. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Never was true. But we, the <laughs> illusion, we had the illusion much more strongly that it was true. Well, history is cool because you go, if you're me, I was born right after World War II. So I, I missed that ride. But that was quite a ride. 75 million people were killed on this planet during World War II. 75 million people. And the globe, uh, the borderlines were shifted around. The economy was shifted around. A lot of startups came after that in terms of um, economic realities, cultural realities. Um, so... That's a big point of demarcation. And then we've had some things, you know, we've had our Korean War, we've had our Vietnam War, we've had our 9-11s, where we we felt the ground shaking. But we haven't had, in my lifetime, yet until right now, a real earth-shaking moment. And this is one. This is, is, and you're right, we don't know how this is going to turn out. And uh, you can, in the realm of not knowing, you go to your, you go to your presets, you know, on the synthesizer. Okay, I know what this sounds like. We'll do this, or you go into anxiety, at the other extreme. So there's a real art to like not going for the presets and not tumbling into anxiety, 
and sort of keeping some kind of balance. It's, it's, um, you're going to use the training you got to do that. So what's supporting you best right now? Well, I, I kind of, I'm at my house uh, on Long Island, uh, New York, and I came here right away and I went like, okay, I don't want to be in New York City if I can help that. Um, and then New York got walloped, as you know. Mm-hmm. And I've been in isolation here for 10 weeks. So I'm essentially in kind of retreat. I haven't really, um, uh, you know, had, you know, intimate physical contact with a human being in those 10 weeks, but I'm a lot online and doing teaching. I made a decision to go like, well, okay, this is, you know, in football, we call it calling an audible at the line of scrimmage. You know, you call it, you, you see the way the defense is lined up and you say, oh, I'm changing the play. And I went, I had four teacher training programs coming up and I took them all online right away. Boom. Just go for it. We're doing it online. We'll see how it goes. And so they're underway. There's one in LA, there's one in New York, there's one in Connecticut and one in Japan. And we got them all rolling and we got, you know, I've been doing it for quite a while. So there's people who can help. And so far, so good. I'm knocking on wood here. Uh, So that's one thing is I went online and using, you know, the Zoom platform for, you know, small, medium and larger groups. Mm-hmm. And that was so. That's one ongoing thing. I work with people individually, one to one. That's ongoing. That's been all always online. And then I gathered together the group of students I've been working with most closely over the years and started a special training session every Tuesday night with that group. And that and we're studying um, a topic called Mahamudra, which is um, kind of you could say is um, a peak topic in 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 buddhism uh it's into the formless kind of practices uh, but <clears throat> it's also fundamental it's it's very there's something very basic about it and maha is great and mudra is like a hand gesture that's what i well, think of yeah yeah uh, maha is great and mudra also means a sign or a seal Okay. It seals something. You seal something with a gesture. Um, literally in yoga, right, you can seal right. things with, with certain hand gestures and other parts of the body. So it means the great seal. Okay. Uh, how, and what it really means is reality is sealed. Um, they say it's, it's a symbol. It's a great symbol sometimes. And then they say it's a symbol of itself, which is an interesting idea for something to be a symbol of itself. It is what it is, is what it's saying. Uh-huh. It just is what it is. And you address it with that view. Of course, there's training because we have layers of filters in our mind that is what it isn't. Yes. <laughs> yes. So you're still going to have to work through that somehow. But the idea of penetrating directly through to suchness or just the thing as it is without any kind of fabricated overlay is is the... You know, that's the pinnacle of the Buddhist teachings. And it's also the starting point. Yes. Yeah, because your perspective is what's coloring it. The glasses that you're wearing of the perspective sure. of the assumptions and expectations and the samsaras. Yeah, like the six realms, you know, those different styles of, of um, seeing things. And so uh, in in the way my teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, taught, I realized that he was teaching from that perspective the minute he came to the West deeply. And then I read that um, uh, the book that we're using by Trangu Rinpoche, 
uh, commentary, he was asked by the 16th Karmapa to teach this in the West. He said, this is the teaching, good teaching for Westerners. The Mahamudra? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it bypasses all the esoteric, uh, you know, it, it's not based on the kind of, um, there are like six levels, uh, six, six, oh my God, most beautiful bird just landed. Oh my God. Orange with black feathers. I, I, I hate to be distracted by this, but something has been going on in my backyard here that I've never seen before. There are some birds I've never seen before. They're you, migrating. Yeah. They're migrating. Is that what's happening? Yeah, there's. It's. Um, we're getting in Idaho too. New birds are coming in because of a migration that happens seasonally. Wow. Maybe like an oriole. Is that what you're seeing? I don't know what that was. I'm, I'm looking them up as fast as I can, but we've had blue jays and cardinals. and mm-hmm. Anyhow, just how, do, how does that fit in with... Um, they seem to come at moments of accent when, I'm, when we're talking about certain things, <laughs> which is interesting. They're like on like, like, little, like those French accents, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the Buddhist um, Vajrayana has six... It's broken into six smaller vehicles. And... Um, they use form, you know, they use deities, they use, like Hindu Tantra, they use visualizations, mantras, you know, um, uh, purification techniques. And then in the ultimate teachings, which is the Mahamudra and the Mahaati teachings, um, the form dissolves into a kind of um, direct connection with the nature of the mind uh, without, without representational aspect so you're just actually just tasting reality (laughs) you just reminded me of an experience that i had actually the very first time i went to teotihuacan there was a buddhist teacher who came with us kevin griffin who teaches um who um works a lot with addiction as well and buddhist teachings for the for addiction and so he was there and we did a practice of Om Mani Padme Hum, mm-hmm. where we repeated Om Mani Padme Hum as quickly as we could over and over and over again in a way that I had never done before, even with like blessing empowerment experiences. And it went on for maybe like, it seems a very long time, 20 or 30 minutes where you're saying it out loud over and over and over and over and over, and over, and over again in a rapid way. And I had this experience where I became... Kuan Yin, mm-hmm. like well, myself that, dissolved. Uh huh. And I've never had an experience like that before <laughs> or since. I've had experience of dissolving in Kirtan, uh huh, yeah. of trans transcendence. But is that uh-huh. a common thing in Buddhism? Well, it's a funny, it's a funny thing because the all of these traditions would say that the consciousness is multi-tiered, you know, and 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 that it, in some extent. All the different la- levels or layers are coexisting, in, in you know, uh, so so of course the the simplest way of talking about this, okay, would be using what we call the three kayas, kayas body, right? So we we would say that the nirmanakaya is the form body, like rupa, you know, that's your body. You know, it's like Buddha's body. You know, he had knees, he had elbows, um, hair, you know, that, that 
strict level of form. Then um, the kind of next general level up is called the Sambhogakaya, which means body of bliss, which is, uh, there's still form, but it's energetic form. So it's like the deities. You know, you could argue whether Hanuman and those folks fit into this category or not. Uh, That would be an interesting thing to talk to the bhaktis about. But basically, Kuan Yin would be that. She or he would be um, a body of light. Mm-hmm. If you visualize somebody like that, you don't see them as a solid body, um, but they have uh, a form that relates to their particular qualities. You know, she, she might be holding a flower, or a, a wrathful deity might be holding a blade. You know, there, there's some communication of the energy world, the emotional world, is at that level. But you could put your hand through it; it's it's virtual reality. And then the the kind of higher kaya is called the dharma kaya, which is just the uh, um, mind realm, which is formless. In other words, if you took look at your mind right now, you can't say what form it is, what shape, what color it is, right? Right. There's just this sort of sense of awareness or consciousness or whatever. So those three kayas, now, here's an interesting thing that the Buddhists say. Some people would say, oh, the object must be to get from the nirmanakaya, my form body, up into the dharmakaya. Mm-hmm. That's the goal, right? That's not the goal, because there's a fourth kaya that says the first three are inseparably interlinked. So you're supposed to express enlightenment on all three levels, which means body, speech, and mind, or form, emotion, and consciousness. All those are in alignment, and they're all um, not confused. and not um, So any of them can be expressed as confused, right? If you have a confused body situation, you know, even just something like tension in your shoulders, is that, that's, that's some form of confusion at the body level that's manifesting there and then you have anger or something an emotional reaction to something so all of these uh, expressions can be either sort of their enlightened dimension or their confused dimension what what dis- what discriminates between the two is the confused dimension is self-referential it's looking back for confirmation it's looking back do i exist how do i exist am i doing well do i suck you know and then the other form is just kind of more naturally uh, expressing itself mm-hmm. so um you know that's the general idea of of um of body speech and mind and and the kind of cohesiveness of those and and the co-emergent possibility of like okay it could be we could be a mess or you could have a healthy body mm-hmm. you know just mm-hmm. depends depends you know well in an experience like that like the one that i had where it was like my ego self dissolved and I wasn't even thinking of or meditating on or focusing on a a deity at all or Kuan Yin at all. It was just the use of the mantra. Well, that's her mantra. Right. That's her mantra. So she's, she's going like, look, and this is why you would practice. You might do a Kuan Yin, uh, Ablakitashvara practice where you are given a visualization of that deity. You tune into the color, the energy, the form of it. You see it as, um, you know, etheric. It's not solid. You can't, you can't, you, you know, they don't sit down on a chair in your house, so to speak. But she's vividly present. And then this mantra is coming through, mm-hmm. which is the kind of seed syllable of her whole uh, way of being. And so if you did that practice, at some point, then you begin to identify your energy with Kuan Yin. You become Kuan Yin-ish. But you yeah. went the other way. You went from the, from, you, know, you went from the experience of the mantra just opened up the whole, the seed syllable just opened up that whole world of experience. And you yes. just tapped into it. 
right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because I've done it the other way where it is more like visualization, focusing, seeing in that sort of etheric mental realm, the deity while you're chanting that there's a sense of separation in a way. Though I know you can also kind of bring that energy in and like feel like you're embodying it, feel like that's coming into you. But that was, it's, that's in a more active way. Like I'm trying to make it happen. Well, and, and then it can just spontaneously happen at the form level. I just had a visualization of you and your daughter and you look at your daughter and you feel the wonder of, of, of such a being and you just go put, put, put your hand gently on her face. That's the Nirmalakaya. That, that is Kuan Yin. Mm. It's not mm. separate from that. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So these are things that are in the ecosphere of being a human being. And we're just... Uh, the role of the kind of quote-unquote gurus or teachers is to in, properly introduce, um, you know, students like us to this, these more subtle dimensions of our experience. That's really their job. And what you're doing for many, it sounds like you're teaching so much from home. I'm a, I'm a maniac. <laughs> Something happened in my life. I mean, it got out of control. <laughs> I'm a very, you know, you know me, I'm a guitar player, yeah. you know, and cool. it's, you know, I don't see, but there is, you know, there is music's okay in that, in that world. Music is viewed from a Buddhist point of view as either a seduction into the kind of um, form realms, you know, the, the, the realms of, you know, God realm or hungry ghost or, you know, or it's got a kind of pure communication aspect, you know, so, um, I've always seen music as being much more direct than words. I prefer it. I prefer it to words. I mean, I've, I've written songs so you can write, it can add lyrics to it, but I write the music first. Mm. You know, I don't mm. care that much about words. I'm just fumbling around with them to try to get into the vibe, into the bob, you know, into yeah, the feeling of it. into the feeling. Do you uh, mostly write for guitar or do you other, compose for other instruments as well? Oh, no, I'm, you know, I, yeah, everything. Um, and, and I like to be the person who's sort of, you know, with KD, with Christian Das, I'm, I produced his last four records or so. And I like to be the person who's like seeing how it all fits together. And I don't even mind. I like doing the business part of it and figuring out what studio and what's the budget and things like that. I like all that stuff. But we had, you know, um, there's a great little video online, maybe on KD's website, of the making of Kirtan Walla. And it's just him and me and the gang in the studio. And he, when I see that, I go... Ah, oh, I look so happy there. I'm just like doing my thing, you know, <laughs> and just playing with people. And then, why don't you try that, 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 boom, boom, you know? And then you go to the next person and say, "Yeah, I love what you're doing there, but maybe just cut it in half." Uh, and then it all—it's like cooking. Yeah, it's the same. People like cooking. I cook with sound. We sound quite well balanced. Um, yeah, and integrated, being able to be a creative and a teacher and an, a business person. It's the way it happened, so I go with it. And then it ripened, so, you know, in a sense, like a lot of those elements came together. And also I felt like, you know, I see a lot of younger people and I see them going like, what if I could all, you know, struggling along with this or that. And I go like, I might, I want to help. I want to offer my experience and that book, Creativity, Spirituality, Making a Buck, it's really like I thought you could just rest it right on top of the coffin 
you know, <laughs> just like my little hand coming up out of the grave and going like, well, you know, maybe this, maybe these, my process would be useful to somebody. Yeah. And, I'm curious if you, in your experience, have seen that it's more difficult to go from, I'm spiritual, creative, how do I make money and make livelihood? Or from, I've got a great livelihood, how do I become more spiritual? Which is harder to transition into. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, our, you know, my, my teacher, Trunk Burma Mache, used to say, first thought, best thought. He had about 10 slogans that I live and die by. And that's one, first thought, best thought. So a lot of times if I'm talking to somebody like you, I'm just, you know, letting it, letting it fire. So my, my first thought was, well, if you've made it in the material world, it's a, it's a little tricky. Because mm-hmm. even, even though there's lots of famous actors and, and big-time big business people who, who um, become or already have some kind of spiritual dimension to them, the real question you have to ask yourself as a deep spiritual practitioner is, would you give it all up if it came to it? And if it, the answer is yes, but, you know, there's going to be a certain limit, you know. So I think once you've tasted the God realms, if you use the, 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 uh, the awakening from the daydream and the six realms as a, as a paradigm, once you've tasted the God realms and the jealous God realms, it's a, a little hard to practice Dharma from there. Mm-hmm. I, That's yeah. classically it says that. It says yeah, that. I I can see I could see that being true in the sense that for my own self, the further I move along on my spiritual path, the more I'm waking up to service and giving it all away and doing it for not for myself. And that's kind of what you're speaking to. Would you give it all away? Yeah, and and w- giving it away is one thing, or letting go of it. Yes. You know, like, for example, when you die, you have to let go. Uh, you know, death is nature's way of telling you to let go. You know, have you ever heard that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, people think, oh, this is a horrible tragedy or whatever they think about it. It's not what it is. It's a moment where you go, well, um, Marissa, nice, nice knowing you, you know. You say that, your friends say that, and you leave that for them. So if we're attached to, you know, that's why the God realm and the jealous God realm, you can't really get enlightened from those realms, they say. You have too much good karma. Now, does that mean you have to go to hell and suffer and be miserable? No, it doesn't. It means you have to come down to the human realm, though. And the human realm has this unique quality of all the six realms where we say you can access the Dharma the Buddha teaches in the human realm as a human being, incarnate human being. Because you're torn between hope and fear, and you're torn between success and failure. And so it makes you curious. The very alternation of it makes you like, what the hell's going on here? And so you go to a workshop, or you go to Mexico, and you study with the, you know, you, 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 you read books, you inquire. Uh, and that's where the, so they say it's called the precious human birth. That, that particular realm, that particular psychology is, is sort of the advent point for it. But if, you, if you're doing really great, you know, you're going to want the teacher to come in the back door of your mansion. I know people who do it. They have their yoga teachers come in the back door. They have their meditation teacher come in the back door. And then the massage therapist comes in and then the cook comes in. <laughs> <laughs> so there's not, you know, it's, 
I, I'm not saying this as an absolute. I'm just since you asked, I'm just so yeah. Gen- no, general, I'm curious about it because yeah. I I can re- I of course don't have that level of success, and so I can relate more to the idea of I'm spiritual or I'm creative. How do I get my my livelihood in order? And I know for many of us in that same position, it feels like a big leap. Well, now let's go to the other side because that's you. You presented two paradigms, and that was that was the first yes. one. But I went, went went to the second one. That is, I have to say, my personal favorite as far as like working with people, because you just I call it solving the life puzzle. Mm-hmm. You know, and Maui, remember they had that puzzle on the table in the, in the lobby of the hotel. Yeah, and you'd walk by and people working on their puzzle. So I feel like I'm walking by. I'm not exactly minding my own business, you know, uh, for which I earned the nickname Nudgy. That's my nickname because I'm not exactly <laughs> minding my own business all the time and I should more probably. But but I'm looking at the, over the shoulder. I'm looking, oh, that's, that's such an interesting puzzle you're working on there. And you have some expression. So that's what my whole book is about. It's like step by step for somebody that you're describing to manifest, to come from the level of we, we talk about it. Heaven, joining heaven and earth, having a clear sense of open space, possibilities, limitless, then begin to connect it to the terms and uh, you know uh, details of your present existence, and then it comes, it goes, whoop, and out comes an offering. Everybody has an offering to make, and the offering crystallizes if you clear your mind. That's the first step. You go, okay, I've got, I'm a songwriter, okay, um, and then. You make a choice. This offering is my livelihood or no. It's, my, it's, it's, it's part of my direction, but it's not my livelihood. If it's your livelihood, you read the rest of the book. <laughs> and it says, look, guess what? What, you know, uh, Gaelic women used to say, I'm in the love and compassion business. I'm in the music business. There's always two words, and the second one's business. Mm-hmm. So how much do you really understand taking an offering to the marketplace, which is what, what the whole book's about? A lot of it's about that, how to preserve your creativity, but really connect it with livelihood. It's my favorite thing to talk about. I do it till I'm blue in the face. I do it one-to-one. I do it with groups of people. I can't it's wait so to read it. I can't wait to read it. I do similar work with life coaching and um, have been able to thread the needle in my own life because I run businesses also. Wow. Oh, so you're a CSM person. I am. You are a CSMer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so finding resources like this is really inspiring and encouraging because I, I know many that struggle mostly with that business side, with the entrepreneur side, with the bringing it into livelihood side well, of it. And when you say struggle, I mean, it's such an interesting concept because Probably it means they're their own obstacle at that point. No, it is. It's right? absolutely that, for sure. It's an internal struggle. It's an internal belief. Well, there's that. And that's so there's chapters in the book about poverty mentality and about, you know, kind of, um, you know, how you can, uh, there's a chapter called Never Negotiate Against Yourself. Um, you know, there's practical guides, but then there's the issue of like understanding the business as, um, just like the way you'd learn to orchestrate or play guitar. There are business chops. There are people who are good at business. They learned it. They, didn't, they weren't born good at it. And, you know, great guitar players, they learned how to, how to play the guitar. So I feel like spiritual people, if they, if they poo-poo that, they, they're, um, 
And that's one of my biggest complaints, really, about the spiritual world is they poo-pooed the material world, which supports them. I, I think you should Oh, totally. A- yeah. I mean, I, yeah. in my yoga teacher trainings with the teachers, when I asked them, you know, who, how are you, are you going to charge for classes once you become a yoga teacher? And they say, no, I can't charge for teaching because it's just something that I want to give because it means so much to me. Well, that's fine, isn't it? Yes. But yes. then just tell me how you're going to pay your rent and then we're done. And there's many other ways. Yeah, there are. Look, I use Charles Ives as an example of one of the great composers of the 20th century. He did not want to sell music. So he sold insurance. He didn't mind selling insurance. And then he wrote on his own time. That's, to me, a totally viable, as I say, the offering comes out, you go left, you go right. If you're going right and you're saying, this is my livelihood, we got to, like, it's it's boot camp time for for fundamentals and... A lot of the people haven't been trained, you know, that you're talking about, don't have that training. And they also might think it's dirty. Yeah, there are certainly you know? beliefs like that. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Oh, well, good. Uh, your book is going to be an incredible resource for many, I can tell. It's going to be that hand coming up out of the grave. Yeah. Well, I'm happy <laughs> if it is because I put, I left, you know, I have an expression, you leave it on the field. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to like five years later go, oh, I didn't really quite, you know, I just, that book really has a lot of me in it. And, um, you know, for what it's worth, it's it's modest in the sense that may not, you know, people, I recognize that business people might read it and think it's kind of fundamental in terms of business and spiritual people might read it and think it's kind of fundamental in terms of, you know, meditation practices uh, and creative people might read and go, you can't really talk about this stuff. <laughs> so, uh, but I just know enough people who go like, oh, I mean, I put it on the table in restaurants and the waitress comes by and says, I got to have that book right away because she's an actress, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm happy about it. Uh, it's rare that I say that about something that I usually don't like to look at it again after I created it, but that, that <laughs> I feel good about it. Awesome. Well, I my like I shared in the beginning, my daughter is you have a sixteen year old super fan who lives here in Boise, Idaho. And Where I said, is she? She's around somewhere. She's I, I gotta meet her sometime. <laughs> but I said, I'm gonna talk to David today. Is there anything yeah. that you want me to ask him? And she said, Yeah, ask him ask him how he found spirituality when he was younger. What that was like for him when he was like my age. Yeah, wow. Well she's very advanced, obviously, if she's thinking about stuff like this. I was maybe a little bit older, not a lot older. I, I'm going to say my intro to what we're calling the spiritual domain was really at probably first through music and film, you know, and it was coming from like a time when none of this was even in the, in the zeitgeist, you know. When I was 16, it was the year was 1964, and there was no Buddhism, and there was no Hinduism, and there was no yoga, and there was you know there was a little bit of yoga. That's that's all there was. So I was getting it more through like I like to watch Japanese films, for example. I like samurai movies. I loved. I I flipped out when I saw um, my first Chinese kung fu movie in, in Chinatown, and. And they're fighting and fighting. And then this monk just comes floating down on the leaves like he's doing that light walking stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm going like, and it's a monk. And I'm going like, oh, <laughs> what the hell is that? I, that's so cool. 
So, and, and then I listened to Japanese imperial court music, Gagaku, and I listened to John Coltrane, jazz, you know, Love Supreme. And I thought, these people are tapping into something that's, uh, that, that's, that's deep. And then I think that led to an interest in Buddhism, which I started to read uh, maybe a little older, maybe 18 or so, but there weren't any books. There no. was just, there was Siddhartha or something like that. You know, that's by Herman Hesse. That's all there was. So I was primed and I got into, I went back to music school to Berkeley College. So I was more like uh, 22 when I did that. And then I was into studying yoga and I was being a vegetarian. And then, as I said, Trungpa Rinpoche, my yoga teacher hosted him coming to the center, maybe 20 people at the workshop, very intimate. You know, he gave each person individual instruction. It was like a, a completely fortunate circumstance to be have, have that kind of proximity to somebody with such that kind of training. And then I was just into it from then on. And it really, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to talk to her. So what's her name? Maya. Yeah, Maya. Illusion. <laughs> So, you know, you tell her I'll talk to her sometime if she wants to, okay? Okay. Yeah. yeah. She yeah. would love we could, that. We could do a little Skype or something. But, um, you know, for me, that's a great time to start the practice. And, and the things to think about are being open to whatever's around you and what magnetizes you. That's, that's an important principle. And then, you know, like Pema Chodron says, sticking to one boat. If you find something you like, to go in deeper. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. she's being exposed to it all through you. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're, you know, you can, you can be an unusual kind of mom and that there's a sort of, I have that with my son. My son's a Buddhist teacher, Ethan Nickturn. He's quite well known, actually. He's got books out and he's got a pretty, so we can just talk about this. It's like talking shop. With your son. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, and he's very strong as a teacher. I'm, 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 he might be my first phone call on like, oh, what is this about this little you know detail or something like that? And I also would ask him, I'm having trouble with this person. What would you do? Mm, amazing. Yeah. What a beautiful it's, relationship. It, it, it is. It's very special. And it just evolved that way. Nobody forced it in that direction. But you'll probably have that relationship with, with Maya. We're beginning. We're, we're, yeah. we're beginning to have that kind of relationship. I've given her be love now and... Love everyone. She wears Maharaji, and she's very familiar <laughs> with Ram Das, and yeah. she's totally soaked in. <laughs> she can't yeah. help it, but to be pretty, pretty, um, yeah, just super exposed. But I let her kind of pick and choose what interests her. That's good. That's really healthy. And you're one. It, you're one that she's like. Mom, well, that's she- an interesting. You know, we call that uh, tendril. There's a whole chapter in the book on that. Tendril is a Tibetan word that means auspicious coincidence. Yeah synchronicity there's a whole chapter on that okay you know so when i when these things come up when the when the strange bird lands or whatever you know basically the notion is that the world is incredibly synchronized at a level we can't even begin to fathom and when we are awake we notice it more you know so and and when you notice it it should be something that reminds you of your core practices whatever they are synchronicity with tendril speaking and they say that the teachers you know people who are uh, synchronized with this they um there's a lot of tendril around them like maharaji or something like that there's a lot of coincidence power mm. and then they say 
that, like about Karmapa, somebody like that, they can command coincidence. It sounds like some of the stories about Maharaji like that too. He just makes stuff happen um, that that you go, you know, you notice things in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Like magic. Like there's one bird here that I just heard. Oh, yeah. He comes or she comes and makes that little noise like in moments like that for <laughs> last week's. So you, we don't really know what's going on, obviously, right? No, we don't have <laughs> any idea. Yeah. So, so, but, but uh, you know, we have clues, and um, at a certain point, you know, you want to get properly trained. That's what I really want to say to everybody out there. That's what I worry about a little bit. Mm. That people will get the magic, get the mojo of the whole thing, and uh, and the wonder of it, the microdose splendor of it all but won't get fully trained. So that's something that I think I'm protecting that part of the equation these days. Like get, get, get some kind of training. The importance of training, the importance of practice. Yeah. Of learning from a, a skillful, knowledgeable, real teacher. Yeah. You have to be, you have to be sharp these days because you know, you can't blame the teacher. That's my, I'm probably very politically incorrect about this, but you got to check out your teachers pretty carefully. And, uh, you know, charisma is not really, I'd find somebody who's a little boring if I was. Well, I think that's, you're describing yourself. I'm a little boring. (laughs) And I don't, I don't really. You're so humble too. I remember just seeing you at the Ram Dass retreats and you're just like, you're the guitar player for Krishna Das. And you're a guy. There's nothing that's, when we see you, that's like, well, you're not exuding the depth of wisdom that you have except by representing the stillness that's there. And the teacher who, those who say don't know and those who know don't say, you'd certainly embody that in those situations. Well, and as it is, I am the guitar player. (laughs) Uh, and yes, I like to are. think I'm covering that chair, you know, and doing a proper job of that. And that's what I'm doing right then. I will tell you that it's been super interesting. And since some of the friends that we have out there, and I'm sure in your world, are um, coming from the bhakti tradition, or possibly, as you say, coming from the shamanic traditions, is that the it's tricky to have the right kind of respect for each other, but also kind of um, create uh, intelligent and provocative communication so that, you know, the person I really had that with was Shamdas. Did you know Shamdas? No. Mm-mm. You know who he was? No. Which one was he? So Shamdas was a, a disciple of Maharaji and he was a Kirtanwala. Big time. He played at all the festivals, probably just maybe... He passed away. He was, died in a motorcycle accident. Mm. But he used to call me the Shambhala Walla. And, and we would stay up till five, six in the morning at those festivals and just talk Dharma points about, like, um, here's a conversation we'd have. You know, you, you know the bhav? You know that expression, the bhav? Mm-hmm. The mood, right? the feeling. Well, it's sort of like a space uh, of high synchronicity and where things are connecting right. And 
supposedly like if you let go enough, if you train enough and you let go enough, there's a space that happens where, you know, it's highly, highly synchronous and uh, effortless. So everybody has some version of the Bob. And I, I thought he should write a book about it because I think people could really relate to that concept from wherever they're coming from. And you'd say like an uh, athlete would say, I'm in the zone. Yeah, the flow. Yeah, the Bob in the flow. So I said, well, Shamdas, you know, about three in the morning. If you're trying to get into the Bob, you know, if you have effort in the Bob, he says, then it's not the Bob. You can't be in the Bob. So it's sort of like, um, how, do you, how do you tune in to all these qualities that we're all talking about, which is some kind of ease, some kind of presence. And you need some effort. And you also need ease as a component of your effort or joy, you know. So that's a tricky, a lot of people will err on one side or the other of that equation. They'll try too hard or mm-hmm. they'll be too lazy. Yeah, the, the yogis, we call it effortless effort. Ah, yeah. And that's, but, it sounds like a paradox, but mm-hmm. there, it is an experience. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like the mama bear, not too much, not too little. Yeah, not too tight, not too loose, right? Yeah, we, or we say tight, tight but loose. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's what we say when we're out in the festivals, tight but loose. Yes, I, I did a podcast with uh, Rodney and Colleen, you know, Rodney Yee and Colleen Seidman. Mm-hmm. Do you know them? They're yoga. Well, I know yoga. of them. Yeah. They're so, they're cool. I mean, it's, um, what is, you know, everybody who's teaching something is kind of, people are going to ask you and it's a legit, what is the fruition of this practice? So in Buddhism, we talk about the ground and the path and the fruition. And you have some sense of the view, what the practice is and kind of where it leads. People want the fruition, but they don't even know what it is. They, they wouldn't, without going through that process, um, they would just transform the fruition into some kind of sense of accomplishment or, you know, some kind of uh, grasping energy. Mm-hmm. So the ground for most of these practices is dukkha. Something. Nobody does yoga if they don't have the dukkha. They want the sukha. They want the ease and the joy. But really they're coming to get rid of the dukkha or to change the dukkha. Right. My back hurts, or I, I'm, not, I'm impatient, or you know, I don't feel flexible, I don't feel fluid. My breath is not, you know, useful. But would you say that if you're starting with that intention to change what is, <laughs> are you starting from the right place? Isn't it starting well, it, from right where you are? I guess yeah, and part of I, that I, is the fact that you might want to change what is is what is well it sort of gets into like all kinds of different ways of talking about it but of course if you're suffering you want to change it if you if you're not completely out of your mind you go i'm uncomfortable i didn't sleep well last night i haven't slept Mm -hmm. well for a year well there's nothing wrong with wanting to see what the cause of that is and change it you might have the idea that you could you know you could have a better experience than that but then that traps you into the another loop where you results oriented. So the question is, can you start where you are? And the path is the main thing. Like if, if it was ground would be like 10% fruition would be 10% and path would be 80%. Mostly it's process. And if you begin to enjoy process, if you enjoy 
relating to practice. Um, if you don't mind working with struggle, if you don't mind working with the dukkha, making friends with it, uh, you know, shifting a little bit here and there, um, that's going to be a much, that's going to be somebody who can run a marathon and not just a sprint. The long game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, David, for all these teachings. I feel like it's a conversation that could go on and on. And um, I'm incredibly grateful for your time and your energy and dropping in with me today and our listeners and your your book, Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Book. It's out now on all the platforms. I'm sure they can purchase it on. And I, I look forward to getting my own copy. Yeah, and there's an audio version, which I read, which I, oh. I like. And so if people are not you know, readers these days, but you like to share the space with the author. Okay, cool. I'm, I'm particularly happy about that, how that came out. So that's the third, you know, there's Kindle and then there's the hard copy. Yeah. And mainly um, with, for everybody out there, you know, since we're in a position where we have the mic for a minute, you and I, um, I, I would like to, you know, share a thought that we're in an acute space right now and that it's going to be hard to maintain some kind of stability psychologically. And I think some kind of practices are very, very helpful. A lot of people are recognizing that. I don't care what it is, but anything you do that creates some psychological and emotional grounding for yourself, even if it's cooking uh, or gardening, and you allow your mind to just come to a more stable place for a minute of being present with what you're doing, um, it's going to help navigate the space that we're in right now. It'll help navigate any space, but particularly right now, it's, it's really, I wouldn't, I wouldn't abandon, um, you know, that, that your, your practice right now, I'd really lean into it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent true. Now more than ever in this time that we're in and these difficulties as we're surfing through or swimming or wading through this ocean of unknown, it, it feels like we're in a, a transition point. We haven't yet arrived somewhere. Our practices, whether it's, like you said, cooking or gardening or walks in nature or whether it's a yoga practice or a meditation practice or something that helps you to drop into the present and clear out the mind will help alleviate our, our, our own anxiety and suffering. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, best wishes to everybody. <sighs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Best, best wishes to you. I look forward to crossing paths again soon. Okay, thank you for reaching out, Radha. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. I call David. you by your Dharma name. That's your Dharma name. Yeah, Ramdas gave me that name. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. All right. So long for now. Yes. So long for now. Thank you so much, David. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.